I would invite you to take out your Bible this morning, opening to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. John, chapter 20, we've been reading together from the book of John this morning in our congregational reading. We read John 19, the crucifixion of Jesus. We read in John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, the resurrection of Jesus. And we pick up now in John, chapter 20, verse 11 through verse 18. The title of the message this morning is Resurrection Hope. The nearness of our risen king. The nearness of our risen king. There is no greater joy than to be together on the Easter Sunday morning. Today really does mark the greatest moment in the history of the world. Uh, Secular world may not recognize it as such, but we as Christians understand that when Christ rose from the grave, That is the single most important event in all of history. This morning in our prayer meeting, somebody made the comment in their prayers. We were seeking the face of God together uh, that even uh, Christmas uh, is, is of no consequence if it's not for Easter. And that could not be any more true. This is the greatest moment in the history of mankind when Jesus rose from the grave. And we gather together this morning to remember the resurrection of Christ, to ponder that truth, and to seek to apply that truth of the empty tomb, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, we as Christians understand that every Lord's Day is Resurrection Sunday. Every time we gather together, we gather on the first day of the week, it's it's an acknowledgement of the resurrection of the Lord. But Easter Sunday is is kind of the climax of that because it's a day that is set aside specifically to bring us face-to-face with an empty tomb. Something we talk about, something we we, we know about week after week after week, but on this day we come face-to-face with the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're face-to-face with it. But in somewhat of a twisted irony, at least I find it to be true in my own soul, it is possible to gather on this Easter Sunday in celebration and exaltation of the resurrected Christ, the greatest and most joyful event in all of human history, and yet simultaneously you and I be in utter darkness, in desperation, in hopelessness, in sorrow. I don't know what your week has been this week. I don't know what specific circumstances you've been battling the last few days, the last few weeks, or maybe the last couple of years in your life. But it is not uncommon for the, the people of God to gather together on the Lord's Day. And we come together and we are, as we've said previously, just needy people, exhausted people. That's why you know, we always understand there are always circumstances that make it very difficult, if not impossible physically, for people to come to church. But beyond those extremes, I'm always astounded when people say, I'm too tired to come to church. Well, that's exactly where you should be, um, if at all physically possible. It would not be surprising at all on this Easter Sunday morning we've gathered together in celebration of the exalted Christ. And yet we ourselves are battling some kind of suffering, some kind of hardship, some kind of affliction, some kind of discouragement, depression, you fill in the blank. And I guess the message would be from this text and from the gathering of those around you, you're you're not alone. And this morning we're going to stand in front of the open tomb together 
in the company of the very first human being to whom the resurrected Christ showed himself. And she too, on Easter Sunday, was in a state of sorrow, in a state of darkness, in a state of depression. But after meeting the nearness of the risen Christ, after that, her life was never the same. And my prayer for us this morning is that we too may meet the risen Christ, meet him, maybe some in this room for the very first time, others that will meet him again, but that he would meet us, bring his nearness to where we are this morning, and that our lives may be changed forever. Well, let's continue reading from where we left off in our public reading, John chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. So having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned. And said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things. Well, as we look at this passage together this morning, again, the title is Resurrection Hope, the Nearness of Our Risen King. And of all the things here in this text, this message will be a little bit different from others we do. We're not trying to, to, to look at every nut and bolt in this text. We're just looking at a broad overview of it this morning. And in particular, I, I want to speak from verse 16 of chapter 20, where the risen Christ said to her, But before we get to that one simple, eloquent word, we've got to understand the background, the backdrop, the context of loss that Mary was experiencing out of which she heard that word. For we see in Mary a woman perhaps just like you this morning. I don't know, maybe not, but if it applies, if the shoe fits, a woman in deep spiritual darkness in hopelessness, and in sorrow. We're told in verse 11 that she's weeping outside the tomb. A better translation for the verb weeping is wailing. In the Greek language, there's multiple words for weeping, for crying. One of them refers to silent tears. But the one that's used here, yes, absolutely, it's weeping, but it refers to a loud expression of grief. This woman is sobbing, audible tears, 
are pouring down her cheek. She is beside herself. We, we've probably all been there at one time or another. I just can't catch my breath. The tears are flowing. These are cries of anguish, tears of lament, wailing in deep, deep sorrow. For if you think back, it's been a week of incredible strain on this woman. And it has reached its culmination, in the, its climax, if you will, in the crucifixion and death of the most important person in the world to her. Put yourself in her shoes. We know from the previous text, Mary was there when she saw her king, her savior, her lord, her treasure, the one most important to her. She saw him die on the cross. We know from, from subsequent texts, she was one of, if not the last to leave Calvary. She hung around. She stayed after most everyone had left. She felt the weight and the gravity, the fullness throughout the full crucifixion of Jesus and, and the aftermath of it. One of the very last to leave. And then she and the other woman, women were told in chapter 20 were the first to arrive after the Sabbath rest. Last to leave and the first to arrive. Verse 1 tells us Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Again, literally, it was dark there. But one of the things we also know in Scripture there's a reason why the authors throw in darkness. I mean, it's not because that is necessarily important to the storyline of the story. It's because there's also there a picture of the darkness that she was in. The darkness as she came on that morning describes what was going on in her soul. And she comes even before lights out. And she's broken over the death of this one. This one who had met her where she was. This one who had healed her. Remember, she was the one who was uh, indwelt with sevenfold demons. Now, we're in our study of Revelation. We know numbers now mean something, right? It doesn't necessarily mean there were seven demons as much as it means corruption. The fullness of, 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 of depravity filled her soul. And Christ was the one who, who cast that out of her, who freed her from that bondage, who gave her her life back. Jesus is the king that she had said, subsequent to that, I will follow you to the ends of the earth. You are everything to me. I forsake all else. I follow you. She had a love for him. And because she had been forgiven much, she loved much for Jesus. And now her Jesus is dead and she is crushed. She is broken. She is in darkness. She is in grief. He's dead. And she knows it. She watched him die. She watched them put the arrow into his side and he bled out blood and water. She watched the soldiers go around and in preparation for the Sabbath for those who were not yet dead. She watched them break their legs so they would die quickly. But they came to Jesus and there was no need to break his legs. He was already dead. She watched his lifeless corpse be taken off the cross. But she had been given much, forgiven much. So she loved much. She knew that she owed everything to him. And even in his death, she knew, 
I'm still not done. I owe him so much more. There's one more thing she can do for her king that she loves. I can anoint his body for burial. Think about it in your own life. You know, we have funerals today. Funerals are not for the deceased. They're not there. Funerals are for us. They're for us, the loved ones who've been left behind. It's intended as, and I don't want to overstate this when I say means of grace. I don't, I don't mean like a biblical means of grace, but it is a, a means of grace. To, to, our lives have been transformed through the death of a loved one, and, and you know what I'm talking about. You've been there. And there's a measure of easement for people at a funeral. And it can take various forms. If it's someone close to you, you've had that difficult decision of, find the right clothing for my loved one. No, they're going to be in a casket. They're going to be down in the ground, but that matters not. I love this person. I'm going to go through their wardrobe. I'm going to find the best they've got. Or I've even heard people say, you know what? I'm going to buy something special for this person. For outsiders, that may make no sense whatsoever, but for, out of that love, we realize that even that process is an easement. For others, maybe it's just attending the funeral, for sending a wreath, right? You go and you look up there and there's those wreaths. For a lot of people, it's just a symbolic way to, I can, one more demonstration of my love for this person. One more mark of respect. A final way to show how much this person meant to me. This is what Mary and the other women have in mind when they come to the tomb on that Sunday morning. Christ is gone, dead. They know it. I'm speaking from their mindset now. He's not coming back. That's what they're thinking. But there's one more thing we can do for him. We can anoint his dead body. So she arrives and we're told again, chapter 20, verse 1, the verse we previously read, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She sees that where Christ's body should be, the tomb is empty, she goes in, and she's horrified, he's not in there. She runs back for Peter and John. Peter and John, they run to the garden, they have that whole sprint back, and they go in. They, again, Jesus isn't there. So they leave, verse 11 picks up after, Peter and John have gone in, he's not there, they've run away, now Mary Magdalene has made her return to the garden. And she's alone. She's made her way back to the garden, and she finds the one last thing I wanted to do for my king. To anoint his, I can't do it. I can't clothe him. I can't, I can't prepare his body. I can't do the thing that I most want to do. And that was what we sometimes call today the last straw. Now, we know what the last straw is, don't we? It's one last thing that makes Mary finally break. It's something that breaks that barrier of strength and fortitude. You're trying to be so strong. You're trying to hold everything together. You're doing it for yourself. You're doing it for others. You're going through a difficult time. And then something, usually something distant from the event happens. 
and it's a small thing. It could be something as you're in a stressful situation, you're trying to hold it together, you're trying to keep things together, all the strength and fortitude you have inside of you, and then it could be something as simple as you wake up the morning and you burnt the toast. Most mornings, I put another one in, but on this one, that's the straw that broke the camel's back, and you break down and it's over. Or, or you drop a coffee mug. Or, or somebody just says something to you in the wrong way, and, and, and it just, it just, it's just the wrong way of saying it at the wrong time in the wrong place, and all of a sudden, you are crushed and you're exploding. And it had nothing to do with that person. You just erupt in tears or maybe anger. Well, why did burnt toast or a broken coffee mug or somebody's words, why did it have that kind of effect on you? It's not the toast. It's not the mug, and it's not what they said. It's everything else that's going around. And that's what's happening with Mary Magdalene here. With all that she's been going through in the crucifixion of her Lord, and one last thing she wants to do, prepare him for burial, she gets there, and he's gone, and she's crushed. She was already crushed by his death. She, but she was determined. I'm going to do this one last thing, and now she can't. And if you're reading closely in the text we just read, you see that it's the body of Jesus Christ that just fills her mind and heart. It's all about that body. She just wants to see that body. I particularly find it fascinating that everywhere in Scripture, I'm sure there are exceptions, but Broadly speaking, everywhere in Scripture, when human beings come in contact with an angel, they fall down as though dead. Angels are not like those cute little things you see at Lifeway. They're just not. They are creatures created for the glory of God, and in every in, uh, re, revelation, we're going through John. How did he respond? Over and over. People fall down as dead in the presence of angels. Angels usually have to say to them what? Fear not in response. And Mary, as she comes to the tomb this time, there's two angels there. And it's almost as though they are inconsequential. She runs right in. She does not fall down and respond as we see others do. Why? I would commend to you, she's in such despondency, in such despair, and such agony, so intent on finding the body of her king that the angels are insignificant to her. And she's so distraught. Notice, it's fascinating, it's fascinating. We know what Mary doesn't know here, right? She thinks Jesus' body has been stolen. That's not what happened. God has raised his son from the dead. Jesus has walked out of the tomb alive. And little does Mary know, in the midst of her sobbing, her wailing, her tears, he's right behind her. But she doesn't recognize him. Now, we can go into all kinds of discussions about that, why that's the case. I don't think that's the point. Not this morning. We can do that at another time. The men on the road to Emmaus, they saw the risen Christ. They didn't recognize him either. Most likely he's in his glorified state. But he's right behind her. 
And he even speaks to her. And she says to him, thinking he's the what in verse 15? The gardener. And notice her emphasis there. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. No, it's all about him. Him. I'm infatuated with him. He is everything to me. Where is him? Where is his body? She's sobbing in despair, in desperation, in darkness, thinking someone has stolen the body of her beloved. So she's weeping and wailing outside. And what I want us to see here is the humanity of Mary. That Mary in this passage is incredibly human. Because loss is something every one of us experiences. Loss is something that's very real to one of us, and we know the darkness and desperation that accompanies loss. We know the loss of a loved one, someone who's meant a great deal to us, a loved one, a family member, a friend, a parent, a grandparent. Suddenly, someone who's been such an integral part of our life is taken away. And the mag- it feels like there is a hole gaping in our lives. People lose their health. People enjoy good health early in life, physically, mentally, and then all of a sudden something happens and it's gone. And it's it's horrible to see. Sometimes they never get it back. Something that maybe they took for granted early on, now they've lost their health, physical health, mental health. It could go any number of ways. It's just not there anymore. We've experienced or we know people who've lost their jobs. People can lose their peace of mind. We can go through periods even as Christians where we go through religious doubt. Where we feel like we're on the verge of losing our faith. Losing our assurance, losing our convictions. Now, again, we're not of the persuasion because salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, and he's the one who clings us and holds to us. We can't lose it, but from our perspective, doesn't it sometimes feel like I'm losing my faith? I'm I'm doubting that? We enter times of spiritual depression. Or even in a broad sense, a more general sense, and this is particularly with unbelievers, they just live with the sense like something's missing. I've got the job, I've got the family, I've got the career, I've got this, that, or the other, whatever the case may be, but there's, there's still a loss. Something is missing, an ache, an emptiness. And we as Christians know what that is, but the unbeliever doesn't. They've lost God. They were made for him, but they've rebelled against him, just like we did. And all of these are, are pictures of Mary, if you will, here in this passage, a picture of all of humanity. We've all lost. That's why I said at the beginning this morning, if you're here on this Easter morning and we're celebrating the greatest, most joyful day in the world, you're here, you look good, you're putting on a brave face, but inside of you, oh my, it's darkness and and, and turmoil and and discouragement, all kinds of brokenness here. You're not alone. Mary, on the very first Easter morning, is there. And in this room, you're not alone. We were created to live with joy. 
to live with God, to enjoy Him forever. But the reason we aren't experiencing joy is because of we have rebelled against Him. We've, we've turned against Him and gone our own way. And ever since our first father, Adam, sinned against God as our representative, and he got removed from the Garden of Eden, in order to be restored back to God, in order to be restored back to joy, in order to be restored back to our king, it was necessary for a second Adam to come and do what the first Adam couldn't do. And I find it marvelous. It's a small thing that Mary thinks Jesus is the gardener. Because let's be real honest, in a sense, he is. Isn't that what Adam was in the Garden of Eden? He was created to, to cultivate, to till, to, to, to grow the Garden of Eden for the glory of God. Yet he was removed from that, removed from eating. In order to be restored, we need a second Adam. We need a second gardener to come in and to live the life we should have lived, to do the things that Adam failed to do, and to restore us back. And Christ is that second Adam. Christ is that second gardener. And I do not think for a second that that is just coincidence that here John has, has brought that to our attention. He's alluding to what Paul tells us. The risen Christ is the fulfillment of everything God promised in Genesis 3.15. This is the seed of the woman. But she thinks he's the gardener. So that's what she's going through. And maybe that's what we're going through this morning. And if you're not this morning, praise God for that. But know that as long as you're alive in this world, you will at some point in the future. And here's the good news. It's against that backdrop of devastating loss that Mary's experiencing that she then experienced the grace of Jesus' words to her. It's against that backdrop of darkness that there is a promise of grace. Mary Magdalene is the very first human being to see the risen Jesus alive. I marvel at that. It's a small thing. I haven't always marveled at it, but I was thinking about it this week. I just think that's remarkable. God chose this woman to be the first person he reveals himself to. If it were me, I don't think Mary Magdalene would have been the first one I would have gone to. There were more important people than Mary in that day. I don't mean that against her. I just think there were more prominent people. Think of all the other people Christ could have appeared to first. Peter, James, John, any of the 12. And here she was, a mere woman. Now, when I say that, please do not hear me being culturally insensitive. I'm talking about the first century of that day. That was how it was perceived. In the first century, if a woman were to stand in a court of law and give testimony, it would not be accepted because she was a woman. That's, that's unbiblical, that's ungodly, that's sin. I simply say it's a woman because it's unique in that day that a woman whose testimony you wouldn't believe is the one Jesus first appears to. And that's marvelous. That's remarkable. But by and large, Mary is just like me totally unimportant, and totally insignificant. She was unworthy. What do we know about Mary Magdalene? We're told that, that she followed Jesus 
um, because he had cast out those seven demons from her. So we know that he had done a wonderful work of grace in her life. He had freed her from the horror of demonic possession that she was going through. And the fact that she's even called Mary Magdalene is a clue. Mary from Magdala is actually, Magdalene is not her last name, it's from Magdala. And Magdala was a seaport town where the Roman soldiers, when they were on leave, would go and spend their free time. We're not going to go into it, but I would just ask you to use your imagination. What do you think soldiers on leave are going to do with their free time? They go to Magdala. And there's a reason they go. The, 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 the pleasures, the delights that go on there. You didn't go to Magdala to have a Bible study. You went to Magdala because it was sinfully fun. And this woman called Magdala Mary, Mary of Magdala. I was trying to think what it would be. Lucy from Las Vegas. Again, I don't want to be disparaging to Las Vegas. I'm trying to capture what's going on here. That was her life. That's who she was, a tragic, sinful past. She was a nobody. She was unworthy, a once demon-possessed, immoral woman. And yet this woman was the one, the first one that the resurrected Christ showed himself to. Why? She was hungry for him. She was desperate for him. She loved him. She longed for him with all of her heart even to the point that I'm here to anoint his dead body. I've been forgiven so much, I love so much. And the fact is, we're just like Mary of Magdala. We're not important people. We're not significant people. I don't mean to disparage you. I don't mean to, you're probably more important than me, but by and large, we're not. We're not worthy people. All of us have sinned. We all have a background. We all have a past. We're just like Mary, but are we like Mary in this? But I, I want Jesus more than anything. I need him more than anything. I want to know him. I must find him and know him. And here's the grace of God to Mary. And this is so characteristic of God. The first person that the risen Savior meets is this woman in grace. And here's the good news for us. If you're just like Mary this morning in sorrow and struggle, whatever the affliction, and you're hungry, I, just, I, I need Christ, I want, there is grace for you. There is grace for us this morning. And notice how the Lord addresses Mary Magdala. He doesn't rebuke her. Keep in mind, he has previously extensively told his people, even in the presence of Mary Magdala, he's going to die, he must die, so that he will raise from the dead. He has planted the seeds. They should expect this. They don't. She, Christ finds her in despair. He does not rebuke her. Mary, I'm so disappointed in you. Didn't I tell you? 
Mary, I'm so discouraged by your lack of faith. Mary, your dullness of vision. Man, what is wrong with you? Nothing like that. Just very eloquent, very simply, yet powerfully. One word. Mary. Mary. And in that moment, her eyes were cleared to see. And in that moment, previously, prior to that moment, she felt so alone. She would never see her king again, the one that she loved. But in that moment, she heard that voice calling her name. And for the first time in days, she knew, I'm not alone. He's here. He was dead. I saw it myself. I saw the blood come out. I saw the water come out. I saw the corpse come down. I saw a limpless, lifeless body being brought to the tomb. He's alive. And best of all, He's near. He's near me. At that moment, her whole life changed. Please don't hear me overstating that or claiming that at that moment everything was smooth sailing going forward. When I say her life was forever changed there, what I mean is the darkness of feeling like she would be going the rest of her life in despair and in darkness alone. There's the key word. Now, all of a sudden, he's alive. She's going to continue in a Genesis 3 world. She's in darkness because Jesus, she thought, was gone. Guess what he says later on? Don't cling to me. I am still leaving. I'm going to the right hand of the Father. I'm not dead, but everything that you're struggling with, that's not changing. You're going to go the rest of your life without my physical bodily presence. But it's not because I'm dead. I'm very much alive. And think about what I told you just a few chapters ago. I leave, but I'm sending back even better. My Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Christ. And all that I am and all that you know will be yours and the nearness of Christ will be yours in a way that even far exceeds my physical bodily presence with you right now. The Holy Spirit will come. And that's where I say her life changed with the risen Christ. Not because the risen Christ never left her again, but because he let, did leave, and, but he is alive and has sent his Holy Spirit into her life. And now she still will face darkness. She still will face physical suffering and physical loss and mental loss and job loss and all the things that we're facing with this morning. But she's not going it alone. She has the nearness of Christ and that changes everything. All it took was him saying her name, Mary. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, there's, I got great news for you. It's easy for me to say. It's harder for me to apply to my own life, so I'll make that caveat. But we who are living in some kind of struggle, Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 3, He calls all his sheep by name. So you can, on this Easter morning, 
in our spiritual darkness, in our struggle, in our loss, whatever you brought in here with you, or if you didn't bring anything with you this morning, this next week, whatever may come into your life, you can come right back to this resurrection passage and claim he is alive and just go right there to verse 16 and where he says, Mary, he whispers your name and my name if you are a believer. The question is, do we believe it? Do we hear it? That's always, always the battle. We've all been in a department store, a grocery store, something where we see a young child, young boy, young girl who's become separated from their parents, right? And you can see how frantic they are. Mom, mom, dad, dad, they're walking around and, honey, what can I do? What can I help you, you know? And they're frantic. They're crying. Okay, all right, what's your mom's name? What's your dad's name? We'll find them. And then lo and behold, around the corner, Johnny. <gasps> all of a sudden, it makes all the difference, doesn't it? That's what's happening here. And Easter Sunday is the promise that as we are frantically crying, wailing, sobbing, going about our lives, the promise of Christ in his resurrection, though he's now at the right hand of the Father, I've given you in the Holy Spirit myself. He's whispering your name, Angie, James, Kingsley, Barbara, Jake. He's near, and he loves us. You know, the Bible is full of all kinds of men and women in tragic circumstances. I mean, Job comes to mind, right? Just tragic circumstances. I don't know that there's another individual who suffered as great a loss as Mary Magdalene. Yeah, Job lost all his possessions, but Mary thought she had lost her king, Christ himself. And she's broken until she hears the voice of her king speak her name. He's alive. And more than that, that's not just some, he's near. He's near. I'm persuaded it would be such a profit to our souls, every one of us, if we meditate both this day and in the days to come deeply on this truth. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ is not raised, and yet we still live as though he is, we are to be most pitied. Man, and that would be true. I mean, if Christ is still dead, what are we doing here worshiping a dead person? But I would amend, not amend, I would say in addition to that, if Christ is alive, but we're not applying that to our situation, we are incredibly to be pitied. That's this morning what we must ponder. If Christ is absent, if he's dead, all is darkness, it's unthinkable sorrow, it's agonizing loss. But if Christ appears, the darkness turns to light. Right? Revelation tells us that in heaven there is no sun, there is no lamps, there are no electricity. Why? The brilliance, the radiance of Christ is enough. And that's why hell is looked upon as the greatest possible agony and pain. The greatest agony of hell will not be enduring flames or whips of fire or desperate cold or 
abominable stench, all those things are alluded to and paint a picture of horror. That's not the horror of hell. The horror of hell is what we see in Mary Magdalene here in her weeping and wailing. What she thinks is Christ isn't here. The greatest torment in hell is the loss of God and the loss of Christ. But on the flip side of that, the great joy of heaven, what makes that the eternal joy that it is, is the presence of Christ. The psalmist says in Psalm 16, in the presence of God at his right hand is fullness of joy forevermore. So that would also mean that it would be better to be in hell with Christ than to be in heaven without him. And I say that, I know that sounds unusual, and you may even cringe when I say that. I'm not suggesting that that's literal, but I use that as a measuring stick for my own soul, so maybe for yours. Would you be acceptable with, I'll go spend eternity in hell with all the negatives as long as Christ is there, and I will forsake heaven because Christ isn't there. There's a litmus test there of how you treasure Christ. I don't know what darkness you're facing this morning, if any. And if you're not this morning, praise the Lord. But Mary Magdalene is a picture of our common humanity, and you will be. And this I do know. The risen Christ in his nearness is the answer. This morning, my encouragement to you may be, may be, you respond like I do in times of hardship. You may know it up here. I, I need Christ. I really need him bad. But you, you, for whatever reason, keep him at arm's length. Repent. Repent. Ask God to break the arm and return to your king. Return to him, the risen one. And do exactly what Mary's doing here. Cry out for Christ. Wail for Jesus. Don't be satisfied just by coming to Easter Sunday service or whatever you're going to do the rest of the day. Don't be satisfied until you know the nearness of Christ and your soul is satisfied in Him and Him alone. One of my favorite quotes by the Scottish pastor Samuel Rutherford is this. Rutherford said, from prison, he's in his own darkness, from prison, he writes, I have casted upon Christ to get more of himself to me. That's a great prayer to pray. Today, today, there's so many things that the world would say need this, 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 and this, but my prayer, Christ, more of you. I want you to cast all of yourself, your nearness to me today. And for the believer, you're crying out, Lord, give me more of yourself today. If you're here today and you're an unbeliever, the message of the gospel is you are in spiritual darkness like as is pictured with Mary Magdala. I'm not suggesting she's unconverted. I'm using it as a picture there. But that you're in spiritual darkness and your great need is this king who died in your place, who took your sins upon himself and took the wrath of God on him. It's either going to be on you for all eternity or Christ at the cross. And Christ has made that provision. 
and this morning to repent, to perfect, just confess what he already knows. I have rejected you. I have resisted you. I have tried all kinds of things out in the world to try to fill this void, this loss that I'm going through, but nothing satisfies. I get my hands on more money. I get my hands on a, a spouse. I get my hands on a job, whatever. And for a moment it feels right, but ultimately it doesn't satisfy. You're exactly where we've all been. Because we weren't made for a spouse. We weren't made for more money. We weren't made for a job. We were made for him. And until our hearts find their rest in him, there won't be any peace. We'll live in perpetual wailing and sobbing. And I will say this, the presence of Christ does not promise to make your life better going forward. That's not what happened with Mary Magdalene. Her life was forever changed, not her circumstances. She's going to continue to live in a Genesis 3 world, but she's not doing it alone. The promise of the resurrection is the nearness of Christ. And her life is changed because now she's going to face all the challenges of life with her king by her side, with her king leading her. Even if she were never to enjoy another day of happiness, riches, good food, if she were to become terminally ill right after this and live 10 years as a, in a vegetative state, one glimpse of the risen Christ in eternity, and she would say, it was all worth it. So this morning, where is your desire? What are you longing for? If Satan works on you like he does me, he's probably whispering in your ear something like this. Yeah, but Jake, you don't know how bad I've been this week or this month or this year, my whole life. And you don't know some of the things I've done and the thoughts that I've had. And you don't know how many times I've done it. And you don't know how many times I've repented and said I'm sorry and I'm not going to do it again. Do not believe the lie of Satan or your flesh that you're too foul to come to Christ. Mary Magdalene, Mary from Magdala, with her wretched past, sevenfold demon-possessed. And in God there is mercy her I can tell you you would be astounded that there's mercy for me if you knew me but that's our God if you're here this morning I am persuaded whether you're a believer if you're a believer I know he's calling you by name and if you're an unbeliever and you're here this morning you're here and he's calling your name because he is calling your name it is not by accident You may be going through a dark, cold time. But I'll promise you this. When you walk out the door, if you will repent and profess faith in Jesus Christ, the Christ that goes with you will light the way. He is sufficient.
He is enough. He draws near to us in our time of need. And he calls us by name. Now you must respond.